Welcome to the Lean Change Management Podcast. I'm Jason Little, the author of Lean Change Management. And uh, this episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Ryan Latta and Sean Melody, who were working in wireless generation when a scaled agile framework was brought in. And I was interested in chatting with people who were part of a team that uh, were affected by um, uh, a bigger change that was being brought in. And uh, welcome to the show. And uh, Ryan, uh, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, hey, Jason. Um, so I work currently as an agile coach for a little company called ThoughtWorks. And uh, I'm interested in beekeeping, fly fishing, and beer. Uh, and at the time we'll be discussing, I was actually brought in as a, a senior software engineer on a uh, security-focused team uh, to build a pretty ambitious software project. Cool. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How about you, Sean? Hey, Jason. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, my name is Sean Melody, and I currently work at CA Technologies. I actually went, when I left Wireless Generation, I went to Rally Software. Uh, so I'm a big kind of agile geek. And my role on the team, I was brought on as a software architect and then kind of became the chief architect, lead architect across the project. And I also like beer and beekeeping and keeping chickens in my spare time. Cool. All right. So um, I posted something out on Twitter. I was looking for people who had been part of uh, an agile transformation that were employees in a company. And you guys replied, which was great, because what, what I see mostly in the community is, is case studies from consultants who were hired to make the change work or they were hired to bring in their their favorite method of choice and i wanted to hear a perspective from what what was it like on the ground what was it like being uh part of a group and part of a team that that had this type of a change brought in so um how about uh let's start with um tell me what was going on around uh around the time that the decision to bring safe was was brought in yeah, I can go first. This is Sean. Um, so I think if I remember correctly, we had uh, a very ambitious, very large education uh, project that we were the um, kind of one of the, the contractors or primary builders of. And I was brought on and, you know, it was about maybe four or five or so people working on the project with a mandate for us to grow to about 100 or 120 folks. Um, spread across three geographies. So we had an office in Brooklyn, an office in Jersey City, New Jersey, and then one in Durham, North Carolina. Um, we were based in, uh, both Ryan and I were based in Durham. Um, so we were experiencing some rapid growth, both from a um, kind of number of people that we were employing and were working on this project, and then also just the, the scope of what we were trying to accomplish. I think as more people came on, you know, there are lots of ideas for how we can, you know, solve some pretty thorny problems in the education space. And I think you know, it was a, a very kind of interesting time, both from a rapid growth and then a, an ambitious charter. And, you know, that was around the time where we, I think, really started to see, um, you know, some of the, the need for some um, structures kind of beyond just what individual teams were doing at the kind of scrum scrum you know, uh, level and starting to look at ways that we maybe a little more strongly organized and collaborated across the geographies um, as we had, you know, just this this massive number of new people that had never worked together in most cases. 
Um, and you know, around that time, I think Ryan, um, joined maybe a few months after I did. Um, and then we started to kind of do this rollout over the period of, uh, of several months. Who primarily decided to, to bring safe in as opposed to another framework or how was the, how was that, how was it decided to, to go down that route? Sure. So my understanding is we had a, a chief product officer that had kind of a very long history with agile development, had been, you know, leader in the organization for, you know, years and years, um, was super passionate about agile development. I think, um, you know, the whole, the whole kind of uh, approach, I think, when we approached our customer for how we we're going to build this, we built agile into the the terms, right? So, you know, we kind of sold, sold them, you know, not, not in a nefarious way, but in a, um, you know, really concrete way about how, here's how agile development will make you get what you want rather than just, you know, us building to a contract um, and really building some of that flexibility. So I think, you know, some of the experiences with some previous projects and folks that had been active in their own agile circles, um, you know, really brought this kind of strong understanding that, you know, we needed to build, um, an organization that had agile as kind of a you know part of the DNA, and then I think some of those experiences in the past were seeing where large groups of teams started to break down. I think that was a um, probably the rationale for trying to think how how can we avoid those or prevent those, and really make sure as we're bringing lots of people on that we do it in a constructive way and make sure we've got the ability for us to execute. Um, and also, you know, probably even more so, uh, I think one of the things that was recognized is we need, we need the ability to kind of get ahead of the curve, you know, validate and vet features before they become, you know, stories sitting on teams backlogs and to be able to understand, you know, both from a process and staffing perspective, who are the right people and, you know, the right structures for us to build that kind of funnel of work so that by the time it gets to a product owner for, you know, more detailed breakdown that the, understanding is that the customer sees this as valuable and you know there's been some architectural thought beforehand um so i think you know there are some there are some champions um i think it was a combination of folks that had had uh you know done this before and kind of knew that there was a a gap um and you know we were actually lucky we had both uh both dean leffingwell and alex uh came on site to do some training and I, i think you know part of it was just making sure we all had the the baseline understanding from pigs and chickens and, you know, uh, kind of batch size understanding kind of some of those rudimentary agile games that you know, many of us did years and years ago and we got it. And it was a combination of folks that had come from traditional waterfall backgrounds and financial services and, um, and folks that were brand new out of college that, you know, really knew computer science, but had no real practical software engineering or software development background. And kind of making sure that, you know, it's a combination of, I'd say, in the trenches, agile training. And then also, you know, here's the, the way we're going to scale this as we build, um, build this organization. Cool. So and how about you, Ryan? What was going on uh, uh, with you at the time? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I think, like Sean said, um, he was there a few months before me. And, and uh, a former colleague of mine called me up one day and said, hey, I'm working for this company and we're building something that's completely insane. And it might, it might actually like change the country if we succeed and we're ridiculously funded. And we are, I think, I think if I remember, at least this is what I think he said was they are not afraid to throw money at any problem 
and they are really serious about doing this agile thing right. Um, and he said, and I think you'll love it. And that's kind of all it took for him to, to bring me on board. I was just kind of fascinated with the sheer, I'm going to say insanity of what they were going to try to accomplish and, and how it, from what he said, how serious they were about basically not letting any kind of funding or resourcing being, being an issue. They were going to do whatever it took to see this get done right. And, uh, Sure enough, about the time I joined, you know, we didn't even have an office yet. Um, it was still under construction. And, and within a few weeks, we were doing our first PI planning with, with people coming in and, and holding our hands. And it was, it was happening. It was there and everyone was excited about it. And it seemed to be working out okay. And it was pretty exciting to see from, from my lens of seeing like, I've been on small, you know, kind of scrum teams before and kind of a small, simple world. And then now suddenly I'm surrounded by first 30 people, then 70 people, and then 100 people as time goes on. And we're all still getting this stuff done somehow. And uh, the people I was afraid of most kind of messing it up, you know, the sort of traditional uh, command and control type managers, you know, the, the directors and the CTOs, they were, they were in on it. It was sort of like, a, this is the way it's got to be. And so it was kind of fun. Yeah, that's cool. I worked for a, uh, a startup in the, the early 2000s that went through that kind of explosive growth. And it's it's funny how um, the, what you guys are describing is, uh, at least for us at the time and patterns that I've seen in other organizations that are growing fast, is they don't take the time to figure out if we don't put something in place sooner, uh, once we're off the rails, we're off the rails. And it's just going to be full-blown chaos if we don't at least put some kind of guardrails and and process in place. Um, so it sounds like there was, a, uh, from your perspective, Ryan, a really strong kind of um, intrinsic motivator to to join. Was that kind of the vibe of the company at the time? So were people just really excited about the purpose and then the process part uh, was kind of secondary or, you know, were, were people coming more of a, from a space of um, we need to make sure we get the process right and, and, and not so much focused on the purpose of what you guys were doing. Yeah, I think, I think for me, um, I, I, like I kind of, when I joined, I wanted to sort of see how this shook out. Um, I, I will say that the, the purpose of, of why we were there, what we were trying to accomplish was as soon as it was described to me, I was, I was on board with it. I was hooked. And then uh, I think to the credit of everyone involved, they did take time and invested heavily in making sure that, every single person that was there was well-educated on the domain and, and the problem and, and why it really did matter, um, which went really well hand in hand with them sort of taking this approach of we're going to also invest heavily in, in agile and training and books and resources, everything it takes to meet that purpose. Um, and it was kind of incredible to see those two walk hand in hand. Um, and I think that was sort of the, the one-two punch after, going through their orientation process, I was, I drank the Kool-Aid, I was ready. Um, and then, and then all the, the help they brought in to, to see us get started, right. Just sort of added to it. You know, it gave a lot of confidence and everyone was getting it and jumping on board. And I don't know, it was just a really interesting start for me, I think. And as people came on, it kept accelerating, I think for a while, or at least I would say that for about six months, it felt like it was just accelerating. And then, and then things, you know, we began, I think just the honeymoon wore off and, you know, rubber meets the road, that kind of stuff. But 
it was a great start for a lot of us and I was impressed by it. Cool. So was, was there um, kind of an internal employee led rollout team that was making this work or were you more reliant on kind of the, the uh, Dean and any of the outside trainers or consultants that were responsible for, for getting it to work? I, I think we had kind of a, a, different layers of rollout. So I think we had, like Ryan said, the kind of senior buy-in, executive buy-in, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, we had the consultants and trainers that were part of the bootstrapping. And I think the, you know, maybe a, a health check about eight weeks in, you know, just kind of make sure, you know, the rollout and then the follow-up of, you know, okay, so we did all this training. What's the, what's the reality now that we've uh, actually started to apply it to day-to-day stuff? Um, but I think you also had some folks that were, you know, champions, agile champions that, you know, nobody really appointed them as uh, agile champions. But, you know, I, I would count Ryan and myself and some other folks in that kind of group where, you know, we were looked to as people that had either um, a passion around it or had some experience with it and, um, you know, really kind of help maybe translate some of the some of the philosophy and thought and, um, you know, help apply it in our day to day. And I, and, you know, I think the kind of the more, um, I think about it, I think, you know, to me, agility is, is less about process and more about values. And I think, um, you know, just modeling the, the values and the, the ability for us to change as necessary rather than, you know, following a prescribed process playbook I think that's, that's, that's where really, you know, when you kind of bootstrap with a process or a framework and then, you know, adapt it to your realities, I think that's oftentimes what, you know, we can miss, right? Because we get experts that are bringing opinions and ideas to us, but until we internalize it and adapt based on our own business, our own, you know, the humans that work for us and with us, um, you know, we kind of, we kind of stop at first grade, right? And I think we're all trying to look to advance beyond, beyond first grade in terms of our ability to execute and deliver value to the market and our customers. So I imagine that must've been, uh, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. I, I wanted to sort of add in that at least from my perspective, right. And I was pretty, pretty deep in the trenches. Um, it seemed, it seemed to me like at, at all levels of the organization, there was at least one person who, who was really bought into all this stuff. And, and the, it wasn't just like the trainers are coming in and making us do the thing. It was just, to me, there was just like a full vertical set of committed people. And even though we never actually talked to each other, it kind of, you know, you just felt like everyone was actually there uh, for the same reasons, uh, just with their own perspectives, uh, which was kind of a unique feeling to have that you see things like the CTO is there during PI planning, trying to, help if they can because they believe in it and stuff like that so it was kind of like sean said there were there were a bunch of us championing all this and we believed in it but it was one of the few times i've seen people throughout an organization almost at every level where there's someone carrying that flag forward yeah imagine um being part of the delivery teams and also being sean what you described the the, the unofficial agile champions and having people in different layers that were kind of doing that role, it's must've been kind of hard to balance the delivery versus the, the time to learn and try out some of these new ideas. How, what, what was that like? It was, a, you know, kind of uh, 
you've got this regular job of having to deliver stuff. And then the side of the desk job is being, you know, the agile dude that's, that, that has to figure out how to help people adopt these ideas. Sure. And, that, and that's definitely, uh, you know, that can be challenging, right? Trying to do two jobs. Uh, I think the thing that is uh, kind of helps that is really that executive support that if, you know, you're taking time to do a brown bag or, you know, you're going to a conference or you're reading a book, uh, whatever, you know, based on a book the company bought or whatever that is, I think just having that, you know, both implicit and explicit support that that's really, you know, important. Um, I think there were definitely times where, you know, and, and I'm sure Ryan remembers, uh, you know, firefights were in trying to get code out and get environments stood up. And, you know, at that point, when you're, you're in that level of stress, I think, you know, you're just completely focused on getting whatever it is you need to get done. And, you know, then you kind of take, take some time after the pressure subsides a little bit. And, you know, what Covey said, you kind of sharpen the saw and that's where you, you know, kind of make sure you're balancing the execution and delivery um, with that continual improvement, which, you know, you, there are definitely times where you need to kind of pause on it. Um, and there are times too, where you can focus on it more so. Um, but I think, you know, for, for many people, I mean, given that it was an agile company and agile kind of stakeholders, I think, you know, for many people that were those, again, kind of self-organizing, self-selected champions, it was a, you know, a passionate thing that we did uh, and didn't think of it as, you know, an extra burden. And some of it, I think, is is really modeling behaviors um, and, and coaching and helping and leading. Um, and that, you know, for many just comes naturally, right? It's just how they go about doing their, their uh, execution and, you know, how they're delivering um, you know, what they're responsible for. Okay, cool. So were, were there people that were um, moved into some of the out-of-the-box safe roles that was was different from what they were doing? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think there were definitely instances where folks had to play kind of a scrum master, you know, um, team coach type of role that maybe it wasn't their, you know, what they thought they'd be doing. I think there were folks that were kind of what we would call release train engineers. Um, at the time, you know, maybe that concept wasn't as well known. So they, they took, they were doing that job, but had different, uh, you know, titles. And I think maybe today we might call them that instead of, uh, what they were called at the time. Um, you know, I think the way the organization was set up to begin with was more, you know, pretty, pretty deliberate, especially as we got to the, the hundred or so folks. And, you know, it was pretty deliberately set up and hired and staffed based on the model rather than folks, you know, having their, their day jobs completely changed. What I think is probably the, you know, kind of bigger change would be folks that were coming in from either non-agile or, you know, got in there and didn't realize how hardcore agile we were being. And that was, you know, the big change for them. Um, whereas they might think a dev manager is, you know, maybe they thought it was completely non-technical and, you know, it was more uh, uh, kind of shepherding and guiding the team. And, you know, the culture was more about, you know, being kind of an agile champion on that team and, you know, playing the more of a scrum master type of role. Um, so, you know, I think, I think maybe that's where we saw some of that friction that you often see when it's, you know, a larger or a transformation, maybe a more established company organization. 
Uh, Ryan, what do, you, what, what do you think? I think, so I, I think, yeah, I, I remember when we started, right, we had, we had Scrum Master slash Engineering Managers, um, which as time went on, I think a lot of teams kind of figured out that was, some teams wound up feeling a lot of conflict, I think, with that. And then wound up kind of finding ways to, to deal with it. So sometimes a manager would stay, but someone else would step up as scrum master for a while and things like that. So they, they figured out these kind of strange ways to, to deal with those odd things that came up. And I, I feel like from my experience, I think one of those odd frictions that stayed in place uh, as time went on was I think the, the product owner group, um, I feel, I, I felt like there was a, uh, for them, I think, and I don't really know, um, there, I think some of them, that was probably their first time thinking from a product perspective as opposed to a project perspective. And when they were put into that group where they suddenly had to start thinking about priorities and backlogs and things like that, that there was a, a certain amount of, of uh, trouble that trickled down through the teams over time. And then uh, similarly, um, sort of the, the business roles that were in place, like the directors and the VPs and the CTOs, um, I think as time went on and, and we became more self-sufficient, but maybe the project wasn't going well from their perspective, right? There began to be far more of a gap, uh, between like the, the agile groups versus the business groups. Um, but those were sort of the, the tensions that I saw over time. Mm. How did you guys deal with those, with those conflicts? And then maybe not you specifically, but how did the how did the organization deal with those with, with those conflicts? So I think for for like the product owner group, I think they stayed largely intact. But I think the way they sort of dealt with some of it was just diminish some people's responsibilities over certain aspects of products and so on, or they would shuffle shuffle people in and out as needed. Mm. And then on the teams on the ground, like I said, we shuffled around, but. Um, I think Sean would have to give perspective on, on what he saw happen as well with that. And I, I can't speak too far for the, the business side. Um, that was largely invisible to me. Yeah, I might have a, a little more perspective. But I think it was, you know, probably more, uh, you know, not, not completely transparent to me either. I, I think what I saw with some of the conflict was, you know, just, just what tends to happen at, various levels is as things, you know, don't get done, then other folks tend to pick them up and at kind of a leadership or more business level, you know, sometimes when they don't get done, then, you know, you've got some, some financial impacts. And, you know, I think some of that I've seen, uh, seen a little bit too, where, you know, there's kind of this, this art to product management, um, probably, much, much more so than a science and the results are, I think, getting, getting compelling products out to the market. And, you know, sometimes that can be years between when the, you know, kind of miss on the picking the product uh, to build happens and the actual, you know, decision that it's not impactful in the market. Um, so I think, you know, that, that probably is something that, you know, we made a few guesses that were, that were incorrect kind of, thinking about the later phase of the project and, you know, the organization. Um, but, you know, that's tough to pin on, I'd say any person or any, any process for sure. I don't, you know, don't, don't mean to imply that. Um, but, you know, where I saw, I saw kind of conflict um, resolve was really 
in these cases of trying to get, get some alignment and ownership. I think that's the, the thing that, you know, became interesting was where we, we tried to isolate some of the, the ownership level. So it would be instead of everybody kind of owns everything a little bit, it was, you know, I need you to become experts more in this area and, you know, you're going to be working on it for a while. Does that sound great? Yep. Okay. Here your, you know, your peers, whether it's the product owner has an architect and a dev manager and a team, maybe they're working with, um, or if it's, you know, something more abstract, maybe they're pulling me into the conversation and we're kind of thinking how it aligns with the overall architecture and, you know, kind of how it impacts all of the teams, you know, all six or eight or whatever it ended up being teams. Um, so, you know, I think, I think in some ways it was just through you know, going back to left side agile values of communication and collaboration mm-hmm. and kind of working through some of these things. And, you know, there are definitely misses, right. Where um, we let things slip or fester that we probably shouldn't have, or we miss some market opportunities that, you know, again, it's so, it's so the market is so fickle sometimes. Right. Um, but I think, you know, obviously if we'd been more successful, I think we, we might still be there today right building the next uh next set of great platforms mm-hmm. there's there's actually something you just reminded me of sean um when you were talking do you mind if i yeah go ahead okay so the uh the thing that came to my mind was there was a time during our project and i i can't remember exactly when this happened but i feel like we were we were probably past the the middle point maybe but uh where we made a shift to not so normally our teams were split kind of into uh i would say product centric teams um, except for a couple odd ducks like the security team um, and and then then we made a shift where we were suddenly going to do vertical stories um, where a team would get a story and we had to cut through all the products to deliver it and I remember that being just extremely turbulent for everyone because I, I feel like at the fir- from the very first time that happened suddenly like all the doors were kicked open now and and all of us were looking at like what we had all decided was quality independently of one another, um, how we had been communicating through stories and our, our processes and all that stuff suddenly became in the spotlight for us. And to me, it marked kind of a big turning point where we had, at least in my opinion, right. Um, been easy to get into this sort of like team, your little world with your team. And it was easy just to sort of put blinders onto what everyone else was doing. And then now it was impossible to ignore the bigger world around us. Mm. Um, And that's when I feel like from that point on um, a lot of, we had a lot of, I would say there were elements of unhealthy tension there and there were lots more elements of healthy tension because now we had, we had something to talk about uh, instead of ignore each other for. And I think that's when we began to see some of these other conflicts both become visible and get resolved at the same time. But I, I would attribute like a big shift from that one thing that we suddenly did for a little bit. Oh, how, far into, uh, how far into it, into the product development were you when, when that happened? Sean, do you, do you remember this? I think, I think there was quite a, quite a bit that had been built at that point. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, I was, I was probably one of the main advocates for us pivoting more to this model was we had, um, software that really didn't wasn't integrated, and it was a constant problem where we had um, kind of teams only only really worrying about their piece of the 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 pie or their corner of the sandbox. Um, and you know, to me, I was I felt like we were carrying just a ton of risk on the project that we'd each team. You know, my uh, my boss, I worked for the CTO. I think he said something like, "We're making progress, but it's false progress." 
So we'd have each team would, you know, complete their stories and go to sprint review and do their demo. And then you kind of ask a few questions and realized, you know, it was done on their laptop and it was with fake data and fake services. And, um, you know, you start to, to realize that, you know, we can't deliver this, um, you know, to our customers and our users. And I think, you know, the kind of what Ryan said, I think the, the tensions that it exposed were a mix of, of um, kind of healthy and, and unhealthy. I think the, you know, and it's software, my perspective is mostly trade-off. So um, you, you tend to see the trade-off of, well, if everyone's got their own the code they're really owning, you tend to see them invest more in that. They, you know, refactor maybe a little more aggressively because they understand all the context and, Mm-hmm. Might get that module looking looking pretty nice, um, and that you know, kind of the con on that is if you've got everyone trying to do everything, they don't understand the code, they don't understand the context, and they don't feel that same sense of ownership. Um, so maybe they'll just go in and they'll they'll write their methods and or their classes, and you know, just just that's it, right? I'm not going to go beyond that because I I'm just here to get the story done. Um, so you know, that's a trade off, and I think kind of, kind of to Ryan's point, I think the attention needed to happen. I mean, it was a, um, software is hard and the more you delay the really hard stuff, um, that, you know, you need to do, um, obviously if you can get away with not doing it, that's better. Uh, but the longer you delay it, the, just the pain increases and some would argue exponentially. Um, so to me, it was a, something that we needed to do. Um, there were definitely, I think some, some, semi-organic pendulum swinging and sometimes we would focus more on you know different modules especially ones that kind of needed some tlc or ones that the customer is asking you know for some more heavy investment um and sometimes that would be you know the maybe the quote-unquote traditional team that had owned it before that would work on it um or if we needed additional folks and it would be maybe the initial team that understood it the best would then you know pair with another team and try to get the bootstrapped and understanding you know how things would work better um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's one of those things that, you know, we still, we talk about steel threads and walking skeletons in terms of architecture and incremental delivery. I think that's still something that I see where, where, um, you know, we try to build, build these Uber components and, you know, don't, don't necessarily make sure they're playing well together. Um, whereas I think you, you just suss out a ton of problems when you get something working end to end and try to keep it working end to end. Um, because, you know, that's really the customer's value is going to be at that end-to-end solution rather than, you know, just half a solution. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the, the, the core team stayed together and, and you just had to coordinate work between them differently or did you go through any kind of reorg to realign the teams? Um, can I jump in? Because yeah. it might be interesting to, to say what I saw happen and then Sean may have a slightly more nuanced perspective. So, so once we kind of kicked open the doors with the, the verticals, um, immediately we began looking at everyone else's code bases and then like all development teams do screaming and throwing fits. Cause every, every code that's not yours is the worst until you realize it's still your code. <laughs> um, and, and that spawned, um, what began to happen then is at least on our team. And I think a few others, we began to develop like subspecialties. So someone would become, kind of the team specialist in one particular code base. Um, and they would be able to provide perspective to the rest of the team in that area. And that happened kind of organically just by the nature of the work as teams split it up themselves. And then the other thing that we began to do is, is as areas that we saw and reacted to like 
this, this is something that needs more attention. Um, and I think Sean, um, had a lot to do with this also was we began to develop sometimes what we would call tiger teams and they would be specialist teams that would be pulled out of several other teams to focus on one core aspect or one core problem that had emerged that was bigger than any, any one other thing. And they would, they would dedicate themselves fully or part-time to try to resolve it. And they would usually be across several teams um, to get things done. And we began to do that kind of regularly to build these other tiger teams up to, to deal with issues that had, maybe hidden too long. Oh, that's cool. Was that kind of voluntary and, or were, were people being assigned from a strategic perspective to say, Hey, we need Biff and Bob and Joe to be part of this tiger team, or did they just kind of do it? I, I felt like it was a little bit of both. Um, I, I mean, if the hairier the problem was the, I think the more we, we would kind of ask the brighter people if they'd be interested, but Mm. Um, I think, I think, and this is to Sean's credit and some of the other leadership's credit is, is they were very respectful of like where we wanted to spend our time as well. Um, but Sean should speak about this one too. I think this is, I think a lot of what he saw in his life. I've often been called a puppet master and this was probably, uh, one of those instances. Um, so I, you know, and I, and this is thinking, I've thought about this quite a bit over the past few years of thinking about you know, are, are these types of tiger teams, are they, are they blessings or are they curses? Because I think again, with the trade-offs, I mean, if you have a hard problem and you have not much time, um, you know, it's one of those, I, I always think you put the best people or the people best suited for it. And it's not always that the smartest person in the room is the one best equipped to solve a problem because it can be context or passion or skill set or whatever it is. And then the, you know, the curses, it can make, make people feel, you know, like what they delivered wasn't up to snuff to begin with, or that, you know, why wasn't, why, you know, why can't I go fix this problem? So um, I, I guess I, I generally think that the um, approach of getting the right people to solve the hardest problem is always the best thing to do. And it's just a matter of how you roll it out and making sure people understand that, you know, if there's a mainline business or mainline features that need to um, be worked. I think, you know, there, there are definitely people that are a lot better at, at you know, delivering, um, kind of to that, uh, execution timeframe to that, you know, type of maybe more deep thought and less, uh, you know, constant execution, trying experiments, throwing things out. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it can be, I think it's probably a, a benefit. And I think, you know, from, I was involved in the, in probably at least three of the tiger teams, um, at various, various levels. And I think, um, by the time we did the third one, I think we knew how to roll it out better and kind of what Ryan was saying, we'd done it enough that it wasn't a surprise. I think the first one was the hardest because it was different. I think even somebody said, this isn't agile, uh, you know, because we're changing, it's not agile, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but you know, I think the, the, results were pretty good when we did it. And, uh, you know, I think again, by the time we did it at the end, it was, um, it, you know, it was, it was because of practice and because people were understanding stuff like this happened, it wasn't a big deal. Um, and just in terms of, you know, how to, how to, uh, organize these, I think kind of a combination of, um, you know, we should get these people and these people, this other group of people have already showed passion. So there were definitely cases where, there was a thorny problem and people were working nights and weekends and it wasn't their job and they were trying to solve it. 
So obviously when a tiger team comes around, you know, that, that, that person needs to be on that team because they've already showed their commitment and passion um, just in their spare time. And I think there were a couple of cases where, you know, I saw that and, you know, wanted to be kind of cognizant of what people are passionate about. And I think, you know, that continues to this day where, if someone's passionate about what they're doing, they're going to deliver better results and they're going to be happier and you're going to retain them and they're going to grow. And, um, you know, this was probably one of the, the first instances where I was able to influence that from, a, um, you know, kind of, Hey, let's get a bunch of people. And, you know, this, this person I know enough about and they're doing this. Um, so it's something I've taken with me in my career. And, uh, you know, I think it was kind of interesting, interesting approach for us to solve those hard problems. Yeah, that's cool. I think from, from watching it as a developer, it was, it was a really mixed bag most of the time. Um, and, and thinking back, right. It's like, what I have to say about it is even though it felt awkward most of the time, it, it was highly effective. Um, some of the hairiest problems that existed got solved by those tiger teams that either a, no one saw or was able to deal with otherwise or B because we couldn't wait anymore. And a tiger team started to fix it. Um, mm-hmm. but it, but I think as a developer, you would sit and watch a tiger team form, form around this really tough problem. And sometimes you'd be left with this question like, well, why not me? Or why, why them? Why isn't anyone asking my opinion anymore? Like it, it could feel like this inclusive, exclusive thing, but uh, the results were hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like one of those interesting things where uh, seeing it happen around was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, which isn't to say good or bad uh, at the end of the day, just one of those things that wasn't to me obvious at the moment, but looking back, yeah, it worked. I'd say I'd actually go so far as to say uh, we probably saved the project two or three separate times by doing that. Hmm. Yeah, it's cool. I think we, we underestimate the the power of temporary structures like that to get stuff done. We tend to want to uh, either, you know, organize the team by function or by component or by product line or by whatever it is and, and fix them and make them hundred percent static going forward and forget that a lot of the, a lot of the good stuff happens in the white space. And when these temporary structures are formed and then uh, dissolved to solve point in time problems. Um, that, that's why I was really uh, excited for this conversation was to, to hear exactly that, the, the difference in that perspective. Cause I can imagine, you know, companies that are in it um, for the long haul and want to be able to spread skill around could maybe start to include some, some junior team members in those tiger teams and, and spread a bit of the, uh, the skill and the experience around. Um, the other thing that's been cool with this conversation is that, you know, the um, we haven't mentioned a lot of the mechanics around safe, which I find fascinating because uh, usually what I see is, you know, there's folks in the agile community, you, you hear that word and they just, some immediately freak out. Oh, it's not agile. Look at that big diagram and stuff. And uh, other people are like, well, it's a bunch of guidelines and, and guardrails and, and it doesn't really matter. Teams figure out how to organize to get work done. And it seems like there there's just an underlying thread of really finding the people who are passionate about building a cool product and the process part was almost, uh, you know, a supporting structure or secondary. Is that kind of, uh, am I way off or, or d- does that, that ring true? 
I think you're, I think you're really hitting the nail on the head, Jason. And I think, you know, again, I go back to the manifesto, right? Process is on the right. People are on the left. And I think if you approach any type of change or any type of framework or process or whatever, and you forget about the people or it's not people centric, you're going to have that type of reaction of, you know, either I'm, I'm, this is just a non-agile, this is just, you know, waterfall in disguise or rup in disguise or whatever. Um, you know, so if you, if you don't think about it, both in terms of how it impacts the human beings that are going to be impacted, um, and then also that it becomes a, less of a guideline or a framework and more of the thing that you're responsible for adhering to. I mean, we're, you know, we're software, we're in software companies, you know, we're looking to, to deliver working software to our customers and nobody really care. No customer cares about the process used to develop their iPhone or Gmail. I mean, they, they care that they got the working software. Um, and you know, part of that is just having great people. Um, and you know, the process in many ways adapts because you have those great people. Um, I think we're, we're things like safe and, uh, and even scrum to a degree. I mean, they become, um, kind of tools to help you move in the right direction, but I don't view them as, uh, kind of an ends themselves. I think, you know, some of the adoption of, of Kanban from former scrum teams that maybe scrum had been a, you know, incremental step away from, you know, maybe more traditional waterfall or, you know, maybe a less disciplined iterative development. Um, I think to me that, that that's where they, they really shine is where they're, they help to be changed, um, you know, across the organization. And, you know, a lot of this has to come both from the bottom and the top, I think too, in terms of, you know, actual buy-in. Cool. I was, you want to add, Ryan? Yeah. I was just actually reminiscing to all the, the PI plannings we did, uh, because they, they stand out to me as like one of the like biggest, most intense set of experiences that tended to happen on a cadence. And uh, like, I, I just remember all my reactions to it. And I remember the first couple where we had our trainers kind of facilitating the whole thing. And, and I remember my reaction was, holy crap, how much is this costing? And man, that guy that's facilitating it is is dealing with like 70 of us as though it's nothing. And maybe, maybe I want to scream and yell that like this plan doesn't make sense. It's no way it's going to work. We're not going to meet our goals. Like, yeah, I could do that. But at the same time, I could appreciate like we're all in a room trying to figure it out. And this guy is standing up here, keeping us coordinated and getting us talking to people that I've never met who's all working on the same thing. And I had to appreciate it, even though at the same time I was screaming in my head about, planning sucks, planning sucks. But, you know, that was like, I think some of that stuff just felt to me like the price you pay. Uh, not that it was in itself the justification, but it had impacts past the point that it was supposed to be useful. Like, yes, we have sprint goals, we have backlogs, we have all that stuff, but now we had faces and people we knew we we had an idea of what everyone was trying to do and, and we were coming back and sort of saying, Hey, remember that problem we're trying to solve? We're still trying to solve it and and sort of pull our head out of the weeds and find something, go have a couple beers over. So it had mm-hmm. it had these weird this weird dynamic for me of I, I both appreciated it and was infuriated by it. And that was probably one of the, the hallmark ceremonies that stood out to me that way. 
Yeah, that, that's cool. That's that's the one thing that um, always amazes me is um, it, it's not really magic. It's just large scale facilitation is hard. One uh, big company I worked for, we uh, went from zero to I think 80 teams in the span of a year. And early on, we were doing all team retrospective. So at the end of every month, any team that was experimenting with Agile stuff all got invited to these retrospectives. So we'd get 60 people in the room and 60 people on the phone and project a whiteboard up on the wall and do uh, a mass retrospective with sticky notes on the wall in the room and then the virtual uh, whiteboard up on the screen. And we had four facilitators. And it wasn't, you know, there was no process model to follow it was just well shit we got to figure out a way to link these teams together to, to figure out how to solve these problems and i think people get stuck on looking at a diagram or a model and saying that can never work here but um yeah that yeah that was a that was a cool story it just it's like anything there's no magic to scaling stuff just takes longer because there's more people to coordinate that's it there's no secret sauce or magic solution that's going to fix it or uh anything like that yeah and i i think at the time you know there's plenty plenty of frustration to feel going around but i think i think at the end of it i was like well can it actually be hard like is that okay and maybe 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 i can get off my high horse for a while and kind of appreciate how hard this is (laughs) we all we all knew going in just how ambitious this thing was and for the difficulty of it you know like it kept me in check most of the time and it was impressive to see everything happen. Even if I didn't agree with every little detail along the way. Um, and, and we had the support to go through it, which was, was that critical piece. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping I, I usually try to keep these podcasts short, but I keep coming up with new questions. I might have to split it into a part one and part two, but the, the last, the last question um, I guess, before we get into the wrap up was I, uh, were there were there any folks that just had bad word association with safe in general or saw these big planning sessions and said no way and opted out and then sort of how was that handled if if that happened i i think some of the things we ran into was less that you know we knew that this was safe at the time i think at the time it probably was pretty pretty new and maybe didn't even have that that name yet but i think it's it's you know, today we would call it safe. Um, I think where we saw the visceral reaction was the word agile. Mm. Um, you know, there were definitely folks that kicking and screaming, why do we have to do it this way? Why are, why is this important? You know, why can't we just have an MS project plan? Um, and some of that was cultural, I think for, you know, the background of people that had come a lot from the financial services that's tended, that tended to be where I saw people that were resistant to being in a heavy change environment, mostly because they'd never done it before. Right. So they were from more regulatory regulated environments and kind of more, um, kind of structured, uh, you know, work delivery and, um, just timelines. Um, definitely saw people that, you know, did, I think, I think one of the things kind of to what Ryan was saying that the, the, PI planning was only sort of about the plan. And it was also about building that culture and the teams working together, especially across geography. I mean, geo is hard to overcome. And, you know, especially every time, you know, every eight weeks, we'd have another 15, 20, 30 people that nobody had met from the other geos because they didn't, they didn't work for us eight weeks before. Um, and, you know, so some of, some of that, you know, maybe there were people that didn't appreciate the aspect of planning or they didn't understand 
you know, maybe that little kind of under the under the uh, radar uh, purpose and motive behind it. Um, but I think, you know, some of that is just realizing we're humans that you were able to break through some of that. Honestly, if I had to do it again, I would have probably doubled down on some of the social stuff. Um, I did like that we spent a lot of time doing the planning together. I think I've seen groups try to do a, just a ton of pre-planning so that, you know, big room planning becomes a fait accompli and it's just checking the boxes at that point or maybe doing that next level of detailed work. Um, but, you know, where, where I think I saw resistance was, you know, maybe, you know, why are we spending all this time? Why are we spending all this money? And that, that wasn't from the people spending the money, which I thought was funny, more that, you know, I know how much this is costing. We should not be wasting this money or something. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we did later on that I, I think in retrospect was probably a bad idea was we looked at the half-life of our plans and they tended to break down by the you know, fourth sprint in the PI. And we decided to move to more of a rolling planning cadence, um, which probably gave us better plans, but we lost the social atmosphere that I think we'd built and kind of lost some of that. Remember it's a human on the other end of that Skype call, um, you know, or chat room. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, I get it. Sometimes we start thinking of efficiency and we, we miss the bigger picture of really building that culture and, you know, making sure that people are working together. Um, so, you know, if I kind of change one thing, I, I was probably uh, on board. I think it was, you know, Ryan, one of our, our friends that was a big advocate for doing that. And you know, he sold me and he probably sold some other people. And we moved to that rolling cadence of, of uh, four sprint every two weeks. We'd make sure we had the, the plans of decreasing confidence as time went by. Um, and, you know, we did some things to kind of b- bring everybody together on a more uh, ad hoc nature. I think we did like a, a tech, like a tech conference almost where we people bring stuff and we brought everybody together and use that as the excuse for us to, to get together. So yeah, I don't know, Ryan, if you had any other uh, perspective of people that, you know, maybe were detractors, especially as you were kind of more in the trenches. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, it was hard for me to see uh, anyone at the sort of management perspectives and what they thought. Um, I think, you know, developers, uh, me, me included, right? Uh, we all had something to complain about. And, and if we all like to get these heated debates about this isn't agile for this reason, and that is agile for that reason. And as, as you know, deadlines got closer or frustration built up, those conversations got more and more heated. Um, I will, I will add that I think towards the end of our time, um, I think there, there had probably been enough scrutiny into our, our, project that the business side uh took i think had had started to make decisions that to me felt like this agile thing is only good to a point and now i have to step in because i think there's a crisis um and that marked to me uh kind of a a a slow unpleasant decline to a lot of things uh where where all the I'm going to say faith that had been put into it has started to, to rub off and some, some really peculiar and I would say sometimes damaging behaviors began to emerge, but I would say they were, they were coming from people with a lot more skin in the game for the overall success started stepping in. Um, and I don't know if they even cared anymore. Yeah, yeah I think that's I think a natural part of change too. There, there's always going to be the, the highs and lows and yep. yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I think, you know, sometimes that could be our tendency as people when we see, 
a team that has a lot of autonomy that, you know, it's kind of a question of, do I step in and maybe apply more, you know, it, it looks like top down when you're on the team, but maybe you, you know, your motives as a leader or someone who's, you know, done that thing for years and years, or even that you're kind of to Ryan's point, you're accountable for the business results. I think sometimes it could be, you know, kind of, kind of second nature to, to try to exert control because you don't, you know, your, your butt's on the line. And if that thing fails, I mean, it's your, it's your reputation, it's your career, it's your job, it's, you know, whatever it is, your bonus. Um, and that can be really hard to, you know, either know how to exert the type of leadership that's needed, which is, I think, different from just stepping in and top down controlling it, um, or just letting the team go. I mean, that, that, that's really the hardest thing is, you know, maybe just doing some light touch on the team and making sure things aren't going off the rails. Um, and I think, you know, some of, some of that depends on how familiar you are with the team and what they're doing. If it's, you know, you're a business owner, you don't necessarily understand the, um, you know, what software development is, but you know, the results really matter to you. Whereas if you're a, you know, crusty old architect like me, I mean, you've done software for a long time. Um, but you also know and have learned enough from leaders that, you know, you need to let people that are doing the work, make sure they have the space, both in terms of being able to self-organize around problems. And then once they're organized, kind of make sure you're not interfering, but giving guidance and adding value rather than just telling them what to do, because then you're not, you're not growing them as, you know, future leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. So as we uh, kind of get into the wrap up, where can people find out more about what you guys are up to now? Uh, Ryan, you want to start? So you can mention Twitter or blog or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I, I mostly live under a rock, though after you hear from Sean, I might feel like I'm in the spotlight. But the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Recursive Faults. Um, I, I sometimes admit I have a blog, but I think for right now in the state it's in, I will not. And, uh, but yeah, reach out to me on, on Twitter and we'll keep the conversation going about whatever's happening. Cool. How about you, Sean? Well, I, I did definitely, luckily I was on mute because I did definitely laugh at what Ryan said. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, you could probably, I'm on GitHub at SR Melody where I, you know, push code every once in a while. Um, I had some really neat blog posts that I wrote for the Valley engineering blog, but those unfortunately have gone away. Um, what I'm most proud of is our current kind of internal startup that we're working on inside of CA, which you can see at catchfly, C-A-T-C-H-F-L-Y.io. Um, and we're going to launch some blog articles that I'll probably have my hand involved in. Um, but I'm definitely living under a rock. If Ryan's living under a rock, I'm living under layers of lithosphere, so... <laughs> cool. And uh, for those listening, if you go to leanchange.org slash podcast, the, uh, the URLs will be in the show notes. So if you want to do some rock hunting, you can uh, <laughs> nice. find the links there. All right. Awesome. Thank, thanks very much. I, we, we went longer than, than, uh, uh, than I had planned, but this was good. This was a good conversation. I really enjoyed um, uh, the stories and the different perspective that you guys brought. So um, thanks very much for taking the time to be on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been great.